The best advice is to study, study, and study. The more you look at art, the more you visit museums and fairs and galleries, and the more you're involved in seeing, watching, actually living, the more you create your own opinion. And that's what I think at the end of the day is important. Know yourself, take a position. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we're speaking with Tiki Atencio. Based in London, New York, and Monaco, Tiki is a passionate collector in pre-Columbian Latin American and contemporary art. She founded and chairs the Tate's Latin American Acquisitions Committee and is chairwoman of the Guggenheim Museum's International Directors Council. Her collection of mostly contemporary art includes over 500 works, ranging from painting, photography, film, and sculpture. In her recent book, Could Have, Would Have, Should Have, she interviewed many of the world's top collectors. But today, we are here to discuss her collection. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them, and what inspires them. Welcome, Tiki. Such a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure, Sean, to be here, and thank you very much for inv inviting me. Well, it's a, it's it's great to, to to get you and to be able to talk about. You recently published this absolutely fabulous book, Could Have, Would Have, Should Have, which um, I guess comes out of a very personal exploration of meeting people in the art world and having somewhat superficial passing relationships with them and figuring out. I really need to sit and talk to these people and find out what their stories are. Can you? Can we start with you talking to us, telling us a little bit about that process? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. And uh, I wrote it because I wanted to celebrate the, the, the act of collecting. And, um, but to begin with, uh, it's born from that need to find what motivated all these people that I was meeting, because part of, of the of the pleasures of collecting is meeting people. Because you go to um, uh, art fairs, you go to galleries, you go to auctions, and you meet all these people along the, along, along the way, along your, your journey into collecting. And I wanted to discover what made these collectors tick. And what made people tick, I found out, was more or less the same thing that made me passionate about collecting. So collecting was something in my life that began with watching my uncle and aunt collect. And I put it in my book. It's the very important part of my life because that, that formed me, that informed me and that formed me. Therefore, by just being around art as a young girl, um, I, I started uh, collecting. I, at the beginning, of course, I wouldn't call it collecting. It was buying things that I liked to live with. And of course, it was 
um, very spontaneous. It had no, uh, it was not... Uh, um, there wasn't a program or a plan. No, there wasn't a strategy. Yeah. And uh, it didn't make very much sense. I would buy something that was, you know, primitive art or uh, or something that was more uh, pointillist. Uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, pointless. Yeah. Pointless. Uh, so on and on and on. So it was, uh, like I said before, just spontaneous. But you, you, you have a slightly different, it's very interesting to me, you have a very different trajectory to many of the people we've talked to about collecting. Because one of the first things I would often ask is, you know, is there a history of collecting in your family? And, and most of the time the answer is no. But in your case, it's very much the answer is yes. You come from um, a, a, a fantastic family from Venezuela. You have aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents that collected, but collected in very different ways. Absolutely. My grandparents collected, one of them collected uh, animals. He had a zoo in his house. The other one collected birds. Uh, so that was my, my, my two grandparents. And then um, my uncle and my aunt. My father had things, but he wasn't a collector. He just had things hanging in his walls because he liked beautiful things. Do, do you think that the same, I mean, on Collect Wisely, the whole point is, is about talking to collectors about why they're passionate about collecting. It's not about market. It's not about, you know, those things interject, of course, but it's about, it's about trying to core down on, to, to drill down on the core of why a collector is passionate for collecting. Do you think that the same passion for collecting birds or exotic birds or animals at that point in the early 20th century, presumably, is the same passion that drives all collectors on, whether it's stamps or baseball cards or Giacometti's. I do believe that, yes. I think that it's, it's a passion that comes from somewhere and it comes from their own life experience, their tastes, their motivations. And um... But you grew up in a household where this was normal. I mean, everybody was passionate about something and in a way collecting something. Uh, what was, was there a journey for you where you decided, well, one grandfather's got a private zoo, one grandfather's collecting birds, I'm going to collect contemporary art? Where did that no, come from? I didn't, it, it didn't, uh, uh, it wasn't, I, I wasn't considering the act of buying birds and, and, and liking animals collecting. The word didn't click until right. I started collecting, or better yet, until people started to tell me that I was, oh, I like your collection. And I would, I would bat my eyes and say, collection? Uh, it's not a collection at all. But then I, is it really a collection? I started wondering. I didn't feel that it was a collection. I wasn't collecting. Yeah, I was I buying that, things that I liked. That's very common for a lot of people. Um, they don't think of themselves as collectors until somebody else points it out. Points it out to them. And then there's a sort of double take and you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, not only am I a collector, but I have all sorts of responsibilities to these pieces. Um, and, it, and it sort of changes the equation, right? And still today, when, they, when people tell me, I love your collection, I just, I don't know. Well, okay. <laughs> now, I read that um, as a very beautiful 17-year-old, you were given a, a painting for your wedding gift. That's right. Is my that father. Correct? My father. So decided. you were betrothed at 17 or you were... Uh, I married at 17. You married at 17. Yes. Wow. 
Amazing. And by the age of 21, I had three children already. Wow, incredible. And now I have five grandchildren. And the Bernard Buffet was the first modern work that, you know, entered your collection or was, was that the basis of the collection? It was the basis of, the, of, of my collection, yes. Um, and after that, I started going, even before that, really, I started going with my aunt and uncle to the galleries on Sundays, because in Venezuela, they opened on Sundays, so we would have lunch before or so after. So this is in Caracas? This is in Caracas, Venezuela. And, um, and so they would take me, I would watch them buy, or if they weren't buying, just looking. That would what was the family business that was enabling them to do that? Well, it's a long story. Um, they come, at that period, it was real estate. Okay. But before that, it was on my mother's side, it was um, banking, electricity. They brought, my grandparents brought the tramway system wow. to Maracaibo because I'm, I'm from a state called Zulia. And I was born in the state, in the state capital called Maracaibo, which mm -hmm. is where the oil sure. was discovered. So my grandparents were founders in their own way. And of obviously, Maracaibo. it's a terrible moment for Venezuela now. And oh. all the collectors that I knew then, wonderful collectors in 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 Venezuela and Caracas, thirty years ago, have all left. They're all dispersed around the world. The collections are dispersed around the world. Most everybody has got out. Venezuela's going through a terribly different, dif difficult moment. Terribly difficult. I mean, it must it's be incredibly sad for you to see what's happening. It's tragic. Yeah. I can't believe that people are dying of hunger, dying of lack of medicine. There's no hospitals. Yeah. Uh, also, they're dying because they're being killed. Like, And also a lot of the cultural patrimony of the country neglected. Is, is either gone or it's eg exited or it's being neglected. Or stolen. Yeah. I mean, there was a, the first time I went to Venezuela, it was an incredible revelation for me that Alexander Calder had been there a lot. And almost everywhere you went, there were calders because he would go there and make calders and he'd leave them or give them to friends or people would buy them. And there was this incredible collection. But there was this amazing flowering of modernism in the in the 50s and 60s in Venezuela. Absolutely. The architecture, the artists and, and the artists visiting, like you mentioned before. Yeah. Miro, Calder. Yeah. We, we, the university was full of... of, of uh, of um, examples of uh, pieces that were given to the... Uh, so were you aware of that incredible nexus of, of modernist artists in the country at that time, or were you too young to, to really be clued into that? I didn't start really um, enjoying all that until I was later in life. Yeah. In my, in my... Well, you're busy. You had three children. I, exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. You're right. I was busy having a family. Yeah. But uh, I guess all of that permeated my 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 yeah. my sensibility. You absorbed it. I, I mean, absorbed it. Sure. Now you now primarily live in London. You are somewhat in New York and Monaco. Right. When did you leave Venezuela? I left Venezuela to come to live to New York as a matter of fact in 1980. Oh. And I lived in New York until 87. Then I went to Europe, lived in Paris until 92, 93. Then lived in London. And now I'm living in Monaco. 
Are you in more in Monaco than London now? Yes. Yeah. I still have uh, my home in London, but uh, my residence and uh, my domicile now is, is Monaco. Now, I know your husband, and he's an amazing, he's an amazing yes. guy, and yes. he's very quiet. Yes. He seems to be very much in your, I, I, I mean this in the nicest possible way, in your shadow as a collector. Is he somebody who basically says, that's Tiki's thing and let her get on with it? Yes and no. There are moments when he's too busy to, yeah. to, to be able to accompany me. Now, for instance, he's in New York. Mm. And um, so, so there are moments when he's hands-on. Is he involved in the process of looking and making decisions about well, work? That's what I was talking about. He doesn't have the time to be looking as much as I look. Right. But I always consult with him. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And he has a very good eye. And um, so, he, but he knows that I, 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 I do too. Has he ever? So he trusts me. Has he ever vetoed anything that yes, you come back and say I'm incredibly veto, passionate about this? Yes, at the beginning he would veto anything that was too out there, you know, sexually. Now the other day he pointed out something, and I said, "But there's a vagina there," and he said, "I don't care." I said, "What do you mean? You've changed." I said, well, <laughs> change is intelligent. Uh, so. The title of your book could have, would have, should have indicates that there's the possibility for, for, for regret. <laughs> I mean, what, what, is there something specific that got away which you really regret? Many things. There was a Richter that got away. There was a Warhol that got away. There was a Def Coons that got away. Um, there was a, 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 a Robert Ryman. I mean, there's many things that really got away because, you know, there's a limit of, of what you can sure. pay for these things. So, yes, I have many regrets. But at the same time, there's so many things that I did well, that I did very well on in buying, and others that, of course, not so well. It's like everything in life. You know, one of the things I love about you, and it comes across clearly in the book, um, is that you're incredibly passionate about what you do. Whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it 110%. And there is a kind of intensity and clarity to it, which, which is really, I, I mean, uh, super endearing, frankly, to me. Thank you. But you've talked about, and, and, and something I love about, about this is that you've talked about you know, not collecting in an identikit manner. You know, like we, we all see lots of collections and you can kind of go in and go, oh, they've got that, 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 and that. But that wouldn't be the case with a Latin American collection. It wouldn't be the case with a pre-Columbian collection necessarily. And it's not the case with the very best, I think, of contemporary collections. And it seems to me that your eye is very um, peripatetic and very broad. So you can, in the same breath, talk about Coons and Ryman, seemingly very disparate artists. Um, do you collect a lot of people that we wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't be names, as it were? All the time. All the time. I and is it in specific areas? Is it in Latin America? Is it women artists? Is no, it it's, just, it's just a connection that I feel just with, with the piece, with the work. Yeah. And it doesn't have to have a name or a um, provenance or it's just something sure. that I, I, I feel that I must live with or that I would like to live with and that I will try to get 
You, you have about 500 works in the collection. You can't possibly live with everything. Um, do you rotate things? Do you have things in storage? How do, how do you physically uh, I don't, cope with that? I don't like to have things in storage, but I, 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 keep, I have things in London, in Monaco, and here in storage, but not too many things. Um, I do rotate within the same space sometimes, um, and sometimes new things that come into the collection. Um, I like to rotate. I like them to, 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 to find different... And, 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 and by doing so, they, they kind of revive. They kind of relive. Um, but I do have to sell sometimes because it's not, it's not possible to not to, to sell. To, to, to sort of... Uh, um, upgrade. To upgrade. To upgrade or, or to get... To provide funds or to cull the collection or to focus the collection. To call the collection, yes. To focus on something else. Yeah. Uh, maybe or facilitate something. Facilitate something. It's maybe, you know, I, I can grow tired also of a work. Do you still have the Bernard Buffet? No. That left in my divorce. That, that went with the first husband. <laughs> <laughs> we it got was, rid of, we got know, rid of them at the same know, time. Do you want to know the story? <laughs> I want to know the story. The story was that it, he liked it very much. It was a, a gift for, the, for both of us. Oh, getting so it wasn't married. just yours. It was a, no, it was no, a wedding gift. No, it was a wedding gift. Okay, fair enough. And he put it in his office. Right. And I didn't have the heart to take it away. Because yeah, it's not it, like the China. You can't take 12 no. plates each. You can't <laughs> sort it well, in half. No. no, I took something else. Of right. course, it was my father's gift. It yeah. meant a lot to me, but yeah. there were other things. Yeah. Now, has Argo ever turned up uh, and said, I take you by the hand and said, I need you to come and see this thing right now. I just bought it for you. Or I think we should buy this. Has he ever done that? Yes. Yes. He's, he's bought things that, uh, or he's, he had a, the intention of buying things, right. something. And come then, and look at this. And then I wouldn't like it or something. And I would tell him, no, let's, let's wait. Let's do something else. And he I, hasn't been offended if he didn't like something. No, he's not offended. Thank God. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he's he seems offended. a very very even-handed person very like very, very calm, calm and exactly. very uh, focused and uh, he's a one-line man and does he like living Street with the man. collection as much um, as you do or is it is it very much your baby? no no he loves to live with he with, does. with beauty no no when i met him he had a lovely uh, collection of uh, paper in, in paper uh, he had uh, small picassos and um, matisse and brack it's so it, it was a, a modern so he had a very modern collection he and had then a very you've modern moved collection in your the two of you Niger. much more into contemporary and then the two of us moved more into contemporary and then when we moved from paris because mm. that was when i met him i met him while i while i was living in paris um when we moved to from paris to london then he sold a lot of that and we bought young uh, contemporary uh, British art artists. Did you move, you moved from Paris to London at pretty much the exact moment the, the, the YBA Movement, situation yes. was situation happening, was, right? Yes, was happening. And, and so when that, I mean, I can speak to this very well because I moved from Britain to uh, New York in 1989. And when I left Britain, I, I felt that there was no future for Britain because it was basically, if you wanted to talk to somebody about contemporary art at that moment, with few exceptions, they would probably drag out their Prince of Hunting scenes 
Um, and then the YBAs came along and everything changed rapidly. And it was, a, it was an amazing moment. I mean, there was a whole generation was, was, was born intact in a way. When that moment happened, were you amazed or appalled by it? Because it was quite in your face. I mean, how did you react to a lot of that early work from, from people like um, Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin? And was it difficult for you to comprehend what they were up to or did you embrace it? I embraced it. I, it was difficult to understand, but there was something to it that I was uh, communicating with. I thought, hmm, this is interesting, this is different, this is unique. I've never seen this before. Were you aware it was it was definitely a moment? It was for me. It was yeah. no doubt. Yeah, no doubt about it. So that's what I did. I started collecting the YBAs. Yeah. So, did you form a fairly extensive YBA collection? Yes, I did. And do you still have that? Not is that all. Collection? No, there's some art, uh, some works that I had to um, to buy others, as yeah, I said before, yeah. to buy other works. You know. For somebody, you've been very, very supportive and hugely involved with the Tate and the Guggenheim and very instrumental in changing um, the conversation, I think it's fair to say, with the curators at the Tate particularly, to make them look at other areas like Latin America where they were not strong. I mean, the British, the Tate was very much a British collection or a European collection up to a certain point. Um, has that been important for you in terms of your own knowledge and process? Absolutely. I've learned enormously through this experience. And it's true that the Tate did not have uh, a focus on Latin America. And But I have to say that Nick wanted to. Yeah. And, and he spoke to me about it many times. And so we agreed that we were going to do something to um, help uh, to collect, uh, help the collection uh, increase the collection, make it better, make it fill the gaps, and uh, so this is this is how it's uh, the Did Latin it American Acquisition Committee was born, yeah. and um, it was born 15, 16 years ago, and just with friends that would uh, help uh, me. Well, it's also I mean Nick, Nick's remarkable. He was sort of mentor to me when I was a young curator, and and he he is a remarkable human being. Uh, but it's that. That initiative with Latin America, I think, has also spawned, you know, their openness to many other areas of, of looking at the Middle East, looking at the Asia, Far East and yes, Asia, um, and making Russia, the collection a much broader international collection um, than than it was certainly when I was growing up in Britain. I mean, it was it was very European focused. So. And now it's a norm in, in many museums are doing the same yeah, thing. Exactly. It was a fantastic. It's thing. a very good uh, pr uh, proposition to have all these committees uh, dedicated yeah. to to promoting the art of their areas. One of the other things I love that you've spoken eloquently about is that um, I guess to outsiders looking in at the this sort of rather opaque process of committees and museums and trustees and here we are, we're, you know, the Whitney Biennial's just opened, we're embroiled in a big controversy at the Whitney with, with, with one of the trustees, um, is the potential for self-aggrandizement through the collection. You know, that trustees could be not insider trading, but certainly have knowledge or access in a very particular way. But you've actually spoken uh, about, 
you know, the fact that you're very committed to not doing that uh, and that you, your, your commitment to those committees seems to me much, to, to have a much broader remit. You've really been committed to them in the broadest possible context and perhaps even on occasion supporting things coming into the collection that you, you may not have been interested in, that you may, certainly may not collect. Um, and having a very broad and Catholic approach to how you support the institutions. Well, because I believe that uh, when you are a member of a committee, you're not collecting or helping to, co to form a collection of your own. You're helping the museum. And I think the institution is the one that you have to think of it. Yeah. Number one. And it's, sometimes it's daunting because most people tend to have their opinions about what has to be purchased and what... But they, 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 you know, they have to understand, and I try to make them understand. It's part of what I have to do. And when we vote, it's it's very evident that that you know sometimes there's there's a lot of controversy over sure. work. But for as long as you keep focused and, and that in mind that, that that what the importance the important is the the institution what you're trying to do. Were you the first chairwoman of the Guggenheim's International Council? The, no, Dakis Joannus was the first one. And well, then he's not a chairwoman, he's a chairman. chairman. You yes, were, I am the first woman chair. You're the first woman chair of the Guggenheim <laughs> yes. International Council. You caught me. <laughs> um, that was a... <laughs> how, how did that come about? Did Dakis... Did Darkis approach you specifically when he was stepping down and saying he'd no, like you to take no, over? No, no, there was uh, other two members. I don't remember how it happened, but they, they, they proposed my name. Other, I think it was two other members. I don't think it was Darkis who proposed me. Do you have a particular sense of responsibility as the first woman chairing the Guggenheim International Council to... It is a big responsibility. ...to sharpen their pencil with regard to women in the collection and uh, Latin American representation and other areas of... I hate using the word minorities, but people who are underrepresented in the collection. Is that an important thing for you? No. Yes and no. Of course, that's what I'd like to see. But I try, I trust so much the process of the uh, curators going out and looking for what the museum needs right. that I, I tend to not get involved in the politics. That Perhaps that's why you've been incredibly successful for those organisations as... Uh, their chairwoman, because clearly it's not your agenda, you're supporting their agenda, which Thank I think you. is yes, incredibly I, I, important. I, I, I have that at heart. I yeah. really believe that that is the most important um, commitment that I have towards, towards the institutions. So many people in your position, we'd be sitting talking to them and there would be plans for a museum or a foundation or a public um, entity that would have their name attached to it. It doesn't seem to me that that's your agenda at all. No, not at all. Maybe one day, but not for now. Definitely not for now. My own um, world is is domestic and residential. It's not. Uh, I don't intend to. To. Do you think having had such profound uh, involvement with institutions like the Tate and the Guggenheim has? really made evident to you the the huge differences between one's responsibility institutionally and you know one's responsibilities to a collection privately uh, and in a way maybe it's disciplined you and, and made you very comfortable with being a private collector I, I guess it's a, a matter of decompartmentalizing 
right? Right, right. It's, I can do that. Right. Most women can't. Men can. Oof, that's going to be, that. my wife's going to phone in and complain about that one. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> I think there's definitely differences as to how we do those things. But, um, no, for me, one thing is the institution and one thing is, is what I want yeah. to do with my yeah. life. And the responsibilities are clearly very, very different. Very different, and I love them both. I take them at heart, both. Now, a cliché would be to say that, you know, you're a very passionate collector, you're a Latin American woman. Um, the cliché would be, oh, you know, it's entirely subjective, I just buy what I love. But if you had to describe yourself as, as a collector, would you say that you're... Uh, you, are you analytical in the way you approach things? Do you... Do you do a lot of research? Do you read a lot before you make decisions? Or are you pretty much, you respond and that's it? At the beginning, I'm very impulsive. And it's just a, a matter of, of um, feeling that I, what I like. And, uh, and then I go from there. But I, I do analyze eventually. And I do go before I, I do the... the, the the, the, the ultimate commitment yeah. of purchasing. I do my homework and I ask people. Sometimes I made the mistake of asking people and they've been wrong and I've been right. I should have... <laughs> <laughs> you should have taken your own counsel. Right. I've done that. It's, it's happened to me. But So now I follow more my instinct than, uh, than sometimes I was insecure. I would ask and... Um, and, and, and I, I, in two or f maybe even four occasions, I made the mistake of asking. So, yes. You know, something that's super interesting is in your book, you talk about, I mean, you, some of the book, which is incredibly endearing, is that you talk about meeting collectors like Eli and Edie Broad, wonderful collectors all over the world. And you almost talk as if you're in awe of, of their collecting prowess and reach. Um, and you talk, and then you, sort of in a very self-deprecating way, say, you know, you sort of talk about yourself as not being a collector, and almost as if you're a small collector, which is totally not the case. <laughs> and I find it totally very endearing because you know you you you're clearly not thinking of yourself as an important collector, but you are an important oh, collector. Thank you. <laughs> and, and you've affected a lot of change through through you know involvement with different institutions, etc. We've talked about that. But at this point in your life, surely you must be comfortable with accepting that you're, an, you know, you are, you are a collector and you're an important collector, but you never really like to talk about it in those terms. It's true. I, I, I see others as, you know, these grandiose collectors because they have um, bigger collections or more important collections than I have. Mine is, is, is a very private thing. And as a private person, I just don't, consider that it's you know this big thing it's my thing but that's an interesting distinction because you're very private about your collection but you're very public about your support of institutions and i think that's a fine and very nice demarcation between those two activities and you've you've been open about the fact that you you sell you've sold things from the collection to upgrade to change have you sold works to replace them with other works by the same artist because you felt that you, you know, this is really talking to the heart of the idea of connoisseurship. You could get a much better work by that artist than the one that you had. Is that kind of upgrading 
a process within the collection for you that's quite important? It is important, yes. I've done that. I've also done, I've also sold to buy something different, mm. completely different, or to help my family in a certain way. Yeah. So there are many motivations behind sure. selling or buying. But selling specifically for me is painful. And um, Do you regret any of the things that you've let go? Most everything. <laughs> <laughs> All of them? All of them. Oh, God. Okay. I wish I had them. I wish I'd live, I, I could still see them and live with them and touch them. If you were meeting yourself as a young 17-year-old Venezuelan, soon-to-be mother, um, or young collector, now with your experience looking back, all of the experience uh, over the travel, the cities, the companions, the people you know in the art world, what advice would you give a young collector? The best advice is to study, study, and study. The more you look at art, the more you visit museums and um, fairs and galleries, and the more you're involved in seeing, watching, actually living, um, the more you, you become... Um, the more you create your own opinion, and 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 that's what I think at the end of the day right. is important. You have to know what you like, know yourself, and have a position. Take a position, and um, I'm not saying stick to it because you have to evolve. Sure. So, but that it, it's 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 hard work. It's a lot of legwork. I call it. Um, I don't think it's an easy thing. And another way of doing it is participating in the committees that the, the, the museums have, getting yourself, if you don't have time for any of that, getting yourself somebody who will teach you through uh, their eyes. So if you begin a collection and you have the possibilities of getting a good consultant, get it. We haven't talked a lot about galleries. So I have to do that because, you know, t clear conflict of interest. I'm self-interested here. Mm. How important have galleries been to you in terms of um, access or education? I think it's terribly important to have a good relationship with galleries because that when you trust a gallery and, and they're, the staple of artists that they have is your taste, mm. then, you know, you can, you can grow, you can understand better the, uh, the, 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 your own uh, attraction to the art. And, um, and it brings you a lot of joy to meet artists through the galleries. Some people don't like to meet, to meet artists. They have this, I was going to ask you, do you like to meet the artists you collect? I do. I do. But I don't become... I have friends that are artists, yeah. but it's, I don't collect them. In other words, I know that some people will not buy if they don't know the artist well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not important to you. No, it's not important. I wanted to ask you, going back to the beginning of the conversation a little bit, in, in the book, Could Have, Would Have, Should Have, 
which by the way if you if anybody's listening hasn't read it they absolutely should read it because it's totally fascinating and fabulous thank you and you got there before all of us and 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 did it um it's in book form we're trying to do the equivalent in podcast form so we're we're happy colleagues in that respect um you must have had all sorts of preconceptions setting out about who you wanted to talk to and what you wanted to talk to them about. But through the process of doing that, which I think took you quite some years. Four years. Um, what was the most surprising thing that somebody said to you in the process of putting the book together that a collector said? Or what was the most surprising thing you learned or that was illuminating about collecting? The most surprising thing and the most admiring thing for me mm. is um, the sharing, the wanting to show, give, and um, participate in their collections to other people. They uh, there's an uh, there's a, uh, an interesting chapter which is sharing is caring. Um, that that one that that is the most important thing I got from every single collector. It's a common denominator. It's their 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 inclination to share and to give and to show their own collections and to whether it's privately by loaning to exhibitions or gallery shows or whether it's through having a, a foundation or a public space where people can all, come see all the those collection. things everything I, I, everything yeah. Everybody has a different approach to once they have their collection. First, to, to collect, their approach to collecting. Because one of the things that a lot of people, you know, I'm sure starting out don't think about is if you have, like you do now, 500 objects and wonderful things, um, you know, you're going to get asked to loan those a lot. And that's a huge amount of work. You know, you it need is, a registrar, you need to stay on top of it, you need to, you know, shipping and transport and insurance and where things are going and remembering when the shows are over so you can get them back. I mean... And sometimes they don't come back in the same shape they, right. they left. Right. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a responsibility. It's a Do you have somebody who helps you with that? Yes, I have somebody yeah. that, that, that takes care of that for me because I was doing it originally myself, but it's 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 too daunting. I can't, I couldn't... That's a full-time job. It was, it's a full-time job. Yeah. I don't, I mean, they, they, I'm not asked that often, but I'm at least once or twice a year I have, I, there, I have things that, are, sure. that leave the, the, the home where they're hanging because they're, they're in my home. And when they go, you've got to put something else up. Exactly. You've got to fill the gap because exactly. otherwise you wouldn't be a good steward or a good parent of your artwork. <laughs> That's right. You can't be left... Uh, uh, the nail showing no, exactly. you have to replace it exactly so i have one final question for you um uh if you could only live with one artwork um for th for the rest of your life you can pick any artwork anywhere in the world it could be the sistine chapel it could be something you own it could be something you know that you could never own um uh, or have access to, is there one single artwork that would sustain you over the eons uh, of of time that you that would replenish you and reward you as a collector? No, <laughs> not just one. Okay, I wouldn't we be happy with just one. It's it reminds me of of, of the story of Hanging Heart. Uh, Jeff Koons. Uh, I was talking to Jeff Jeffrey Deitch last night about it. Um, remembering the day that I uh, committed to buy Hanging Heart, the red one, 
And um, I took Jeffrey Deitch to my apartment in New York. And I said, do you think I can um, have this work here in this, in this apartment? And he said, yes, but that's all you can have. <laughs> <laughs> so that your question just reminded me of that. Could I w- just live with one work of art? No. So you have to answer that question, but I'm going to take it that you just did answer that question, that it would have been Hanging Heart. But interestingly enough, you couldn't do it because you'd have had to give up everything else. But we're right. going to take that as your one artwork because uh, you've been so generous in talking about so many other things. It could be that, but I never got it. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I could you, have, would have, should have, so but you, I didn't. So you could have it in this wonderful imagined uh, Just a sofa and a heart, a, a so, hanging a heart. A sofa and a heart. I think that's the perfect metaphor for you as a collector, a sofa and a heart. Tiki, thank you so much for being on Collect Wisely. It's been such a pleasure to learn more about your story and about your collection. And you are an extremely, uh, you define the idea of a passionate collector for me, which is, which, is, uh, which is wonderful. That's exactly what we want on Collect Wisely. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at SeanKellyNY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! Thank you.